We don't believe that in any kind of idea that you can work your way into heaven. Our righteousness in an Old Testament context, meaning our good deeds are, you know, oh, I'm going to do this to help out or whatever. All those things are as filthy rags. In the New Testament, in Christ, our good deeds are not filthy rags. They are the light of the world. So what's happened oftentimes, far too often, is that people fall into one of two ditches. They think it's all grace and I'm just going to chill until Jesus comes back or whatever. Then there's another part where it's like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep, I've got to just do, do, do. It's all about doing, 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 and more and more and more. And it's divorced from an understanding of who you are in Christ. And, but there's a healthy center, incredibly healthy center where we understand it's by his grace. It's his great love for us that allows us to live. But we don't just sit in that. We understand that he's told us clearly, you are the light of the world. And he gives us an idea that let the world see your good deeds so they can glorify your father in heaven. Not about you, not about earning a, you know, whatever pin or a lifetime achievement award for all these great things you've done or, or whatever. It's none of that. Let your light shine so that your father is glorified. There's a place where we do things because we are loved, not to earn his love. And that's what I'm talking about. They may see your good deeds. So you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. You are the thing that points people to God or not. Let your light shine. I'm aware of the fact that uh, my present physique doesn't exactly scream uh, basketball player. But believe it or not, for about two decades, uh, I played basketball, a ton of basketball, a ton. And uh, I, was, I was pretty good, but my strategy, which I would highly recommend in lots of areas of life, was I always tried to attach myself to uh, guys that were better than me. And uh, I played a lot of pickup ball, and you kind of don't have a choice necessarily, you know, who ends up on uh, your team and, and pick up games. But I also played in a lot of leagues and tournaments uh, where you could win money and three-on-three uh, -three tournaments where you could win money and prizes. And so, again, I always tried to make sure that if I was putting together a team uh, for a tournament or a league or a three-on-three, -three, my strategy was always I wanted to be the worst player on my own team. Because I felt like if, if I'm the worst player on my team, we have a, a pretty good chance of of doing really well, and, we, and generally speaking, uh, my teams did. I was, it was great. So I had a, a lot of friends who were way better at basketball than I was. I had one particular friend who I'd known uh, since high school, who was an outstanding athlete uh, in high school uh, in, in multiple sports and really had college scholarship offers in multiple sports, uh, but he chose to go to, to college to play basketball, uh, and he went to a, a Division II school that was really good, and uh, did very well there. And then his senior year of high school, or senior year, excuse me, of college, he actually led the entire nation, all classes, whether it's Division One, Two, lower levels, all of those classes, he led them, uh, led the entire nation in three-point field goal percentage. Uh, he shot 54% for the season from the three-point line. And uh, what made it even crazier is he's 6'7". 
And so that's a tough, tough, you know basketball, that's a really tough matchup. Uh, he was a very, very good player, and he, couldn't, he didn't just shoot the three-pointer. He was good at everything else. And so when he came back from school, uh, I was like, hey, <laughs> let's, start, let's start playing some, uh, you know, basketball together. We were really tight, so we did. We played in lots of uh, leagues. We played in lots of five-on-five tournaments together. Uh, but we did a lot of three-on-three tournaments uh, together as well. And uh, there was one particular three-on-three uh, three tournament that we were playing in that I want to tell you a brief story about. Before I do, I just want to explain something um, that always drove me a little bit nuts about him. Is If you've ever uh, watched sports, I don't care what it is, um, there, oftentimes you'll hear commentators talk about an athlete as just they're, what they do is sort of effortless. Or they're just smooth, right? They're fluid. It just looks like they were born to play that particular sport or born to be an athlete, and they just look different. And so my friend fit that description. He was just incredibly smooth on the basketball court. I mean, his shot looked like it came out of a textbook. Like when you teach somebody how to shoot, it looked like that. It was just that perfect. And he didn't waste motion, just all these different things. But he was also super laid back. And it just drove me nuts because, shocker, I'm not. And so I was always like, dude, like, just, okay, like, come on, you know, like, let's get serious. And when we'd play, sometimes I felt like he was just, like, taking it easy, you know, and just kind of, like, dogging it. Just his personality was laid back. But he was one of maybe the only people I've ever known in any sport that I've ever played that he played way better. And he was good as it was, but he played way better when he got mad. Most people in athletics don't play better when they get mad. It gets them all like riled up and they lose focus and they start to do things they normally wouldn't do. And, and I was that way. If I ever got angry or frustrated when I was playing, it didn't usually help me. I was better when I was more like my friend. But for him, he actually played better. And I'd seen this multiple times where something needed to happen to him to like make him angry so he'd actually like get after it get serious and really kind of like fulfill this potential that he had. And so we were playing in one particular three-on-three tournament. This is many years ago, many years ago. And uh, it was a tournament that when we looked at the teams that were playing and the bracket, we felt like we had a really good chance to win the whole thing. And sure enough, we went through our side of the bracket and didn't lose a game, ended up in the championship. Another, and the, the team we were playing was a team that had a couple guys that played college basketball too. And, um, they had actually played, uh, some friends of ours had played against them in an earlier round. And our friends and the champion came to us and said, look, these guys, they're like really, really, they're just punks. Like, they're dirty. They kind of like want to cheat. They whine and complain. Like, they're going to call fouls that aren't fouls. They're, they're going to like, it's just, it's not good. And our friends were very humble, chill guys. So for them to say that this happened, we were like, okay, all right. Well, this should be interesting, but you know, we should still be able to beat them. And so we start playing these guys. And sure enough, first thing, guy on their team has the ball and comes down and takes a shot. And I just, I block it nice and clean. Foul. Calls a foul. Okay. And so it just kind of keeps happening where they're just, they're just, you can, I don't know if you've ever played, if you played basketball or if you know basketball or if you understand, there's just things that they're kind of unwritten rules and you just, you don't do that kind of stuff. But we're still playing against them and, Things are going okay, but because of kind of the way they were doing things, they actually end up at one point pulling ahead of us. 
and I'm getting a little nervous because I'm like, I know we're better than these guys, but my buddy is playing his normal just chill self, you know. And so I'm like getting more agitated as it goes kind of. And, and so we get to this point where they have the ball and the guy drives and he kicks it and the guy underneath the basket, I'm guarding him, he goes up and he wants to shoot and I go up to block it and I jump as high as I possibly can, which was decent back then, not so much now, but as high as I possibly can. And he gave me like a shot fake. And what you're supposed to do if somebody goes up is you like let them come down or you draw the foul. Instead, when he shot faked and I jump up, he undercut me. Like with the ball, undercut me. And I went flying and slammed onto, it was an outdoor tournament, onto the concrete on my hip. And so we didn't have a sub. We just played with the three of us. And I'm like barely moving. And so uh, it was not good. I, I mean, I could barely move. But we had to keep playing. But... That thing was what it took to make my friend super angry. He was like, all right, like whatever it clicks in him, like I've had, I don't know why it took me falling on concrete from six feet in the air or whatever, you know, to, to get him mad. But he just decides like that's it. And he literally just starts to shut them down. And he just takes over. I mean, it's ridiculous. Like he, that shows you like he was on such a different level. So we come back ahead. It looks like we're definitely, you know, it was to 15 and we're ahead. It's 14, nine or something like that. They shoot and miss. I get the rebound underneath and I kick it out to him at the top of the, of the key, which if you know, that's a three point line. Cause you had to do that. You had to take it back. And he's, again, he's still angry at these guys. He doesn't like them. He's mad. He's just, he's playing a whole different level. So he takes the ball and he just drives right down the middle of the lane and right down the middle towards the basket, hard as he can. And one of their guys, the guy who was the biggest punk on their entire team, he steps up from underneath the basket and he's gonna like try to, you know, block a shot or whatever. And my friend takes off, off he's right-handed, but he takes off off his right foot, which is the wrong foot you wanna take off of if you're gonna jump high. But he takes off off his right foot as he gets close to the basket. And the guy steps up. And with his left hand, he just absolutely dunks. I mean, just hammers it right in the guy's face. And as he does, he does it with so much force that the whole basket came down. And he just pulls it, like, basically right on top of this guy. It's like the best, most, like, <laughs> like just like justice is served, <laughs> like, like the best ending to any basketball thing I've ever probably been a part of, minus like one or two other times I could think of. But just the like, just the perfect, like I don't, certainly obviously I don't believe in karma. But if you did, you're like, that's about right. Just that whole thing, the fact, not just that he dunked it on this guy, but then the whole basket just came down. We'll talk about that later. So we're in this series, as Jordan said, that we've been in for the past three weeks on the eight different I am statements that Jesus made. And we're gonna get into one today here in just a second, but a couple things before we do so. I've said this before and I wanna say it again. You can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. You can't, you cannot understand. You cannot experience the depth and the richness and the beauty and really a lot of what Jesus was saying without understanding the Old Testament. It's kind of in vogue right now to neglect the Old Testament or not worry about it or, you know, just to read the New Testament only. And, and you can do that, I guess, but you're just going to miss so much, and you're, including you're just not going to understand a lot of things. And so I'd encourage you not to just focus only on the New Testament, but to read the Old Testament and start to understand how all these things are linked together. If you look at the, 
the words that Jesus spoke, the words that we see in the red in, the, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a large percentage of those things that he said where he's actually quoting the Old Testament. Even on the cross, he made seven particular statements, and in multiple of those statements, he's actually quoting David from the Psalms. These weren't original things that Jesus even said. He's borrowing from the Old Testament to provide language for what he was going through. So it's important, to, and I'm going to show you this today, that it's not possible to understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Along those lines, I also want to encourage you that the Bible was written a certain way, and it was meant to be taken in, especially uh, letters that are written, the epistles in the New Testament, uh, and among other things, but it's, it was meant to be taken in, in in large chunks. It was meant to be digested and sort of taken in as a whole. I like what N.T. Wright, the biblical scholar, says. He says that it's meant to be listened to as a symphony. So I'll give you an example of what I mean. If I wrote you a lengthy letter or an email, and I titled it whatever it might be titled, how many of you would open the email, scan halfway down, pick out one sentence that I wrote, then close it? Then the next day, maybe you read another random sentence, and the next day, another random sentence. You wouldn't do that. You're going to take the thing in, in its entirety so you can get a grasp and an understanding of all that I'm trying to communicate. The problem is a lot of scriptural reading in, in 2021, Western Christianity has devolved into daily devotions that have one scripture. That's it, and it's isolated. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that once in a while, but I'm saying if you're not consistently reading large chunks of scripture, I would encourage you to do that. You get a feel for what's going on. You get a better sense of what the author is trying to communicate, what God's trying to say through those things. So you can't understand the New Testament in full without the Old Testament, and it's important that we take in large chunks of scripture at a time. Don't worry about whether you understand or retain every single part of it. Just take it in and, and just let it marinate inside of you. It's so important. I say that because today, both of those things I say, because today we're literally in the next, not long, 15 minutes or less even, um, we're going to go from Genesis through Revelation. And, and you'll see uh, why what I just said is true and it's so important. I usually don't like to do this, but I'm going to give you the I am statement that I'm talking about right away. I usually like to wait a while until I kind of even reveal what the message is about but I will tell you up front, because uh, it's important with where we're going, that the I am statement that we're focusing on today is where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. So let's start in the beginning. Literally, in the beginning. And this is part one of in the beginning. If you're taking notes today, I've laid these out in such a way that it's really linear, which I don't always do, but I would encourage you to just jot these down because a lot of them are short. So in the beginning, part one, this is Genesis 1, 1 through 5, this creation poem. And it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. 
God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The introduction to the biblical narrative, 66 books, the first five verses. In the beginning, God, and he speaks light. It was formless and void, and the first thing that he does is let there be light, and the light was good. So we see light right away as something that is related to God and the goodness of God and who God is. So there's Genesis. Let's keep going. In the beginning, part two. In the beginning, part two. Now we move from Genesis to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 66, but in this case, we're going Genesis, Exodus, okay? So in the beginning, part two, and this is when the Israelites famously have been led out of the captivity in Egypt, and they've cried for deliverance, and the Lord has, has led them out through Moses. Now they're wandering in this wilderness, and it says, by day, the Lord went ahead of them, these are the Israelites, in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night, in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. And neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So he leads them out, and you know the story. Things are kind of a mess. And among the many miraculous things that he continually did for the Israelites one of them was a constant presence, a constant miracle, if you will, that wherever they went during the day, there was this pillar of cloud, and it was a constant reminder that the presence of God was with them. And then when it would get dark, I don't know how it looked, if it switched, I don't, under, I don't know how that looked, but then a pillar of fire, right, would show up, and that would be the light that would remove fear from the night for the Israelites. There's many different things, obviously, if you know anything about like wilderness or camping or those types of things that a fire does for you at night. So God shows up in this fire to give them light, to guide them, to remind them constantly of his presence, his care for them, the promises he's made to them. So in the beginning, part one, Genesis. In the beginning, part two, Exodus. Now we're going to skip way ahead to John's gospel, the New Testament. This is John's, this is, if I had to rank it, if I had to rank my top three favorite passages of the entire Bible, John's introduction to his gospel is right up there. And this is Jesus as the light, part one, okay? So now we're going to show how John is referencing and referring back to Old Testament, and he's also talking about Jesus as well. So you'll notice here in John 1 that John mimics, literally borrows language from the creation narrative, from Genesis 1. He says it like this in John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning. Well, what does that sound like? Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning. So in the beginning was the word, and he's referring to Jesus, not the Bible. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was 
God. So right away, John is making a claim, a strong claim, to the deity of Jesus. In the beginning, he's reminding his readers of Genesis When the earth was still formless and void and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. So he's borrowing. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And here we go. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, a pillar of fire that guides the Israelites for all this time that gives them light. John says, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus had life inside of him, and that life was what? The light of all mankind. Then he makes this unbelievable, this one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, now we're going to get into the I am statements that Jesus makes. The I am the light of the world, and I want to give you context. And again, this is all hearkening back to Old Testament stuff. So I'm going to set the scene for you before I show any scriptures. But this is Jesus as the light, part two. So when the Israelites were led out of their captivity in Egypt, and they were led through the wilderness, and eventually they came into a land of their own, and they were able to settle, and they began to establish their own traditions. Part of these God had established for them and said, I want you to do these things as a continual reminder of my care for you. Because as We know we are forgetful people. God does something for us. We praise him. Two weeks later, we've forgotten all about it. It's good to have things that continually remind us. So God put some of these things in place. And then the people themselves, through the priests, established some traditions that they wanted to put in place to continually, on a yearly basis, and there were many of these, remind themselves of the faithfulness of God. And one of these things, one of the biggest ones that they did was known as the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. This was a celebration where they specifically remembered their time in the wilderness and thanked God for guiding them. During the Feast of Tabernacles, this is where, in just a second here, Jesus is hanging out. This is the scene. This great feast that's remembering this time in the wilderness where God was faithful to them. This is where John 7, John 8, and then a little bit of the beginning of John 9 takes place. So this is, the, this is where Jesus is at. This is where he's doing some teaching. This is where he's hanging out. This is where he's dialoguing with Pharisees. He's teaching his disciples. He's doing all these things while this festival is going on. Now, there's an irony here, a great irony that's beautiful, which is the Feast of the Tabernacles uh, was actually a celebration that mostly had to do with light. And the primary ceremony that took place during the Feast of the Tabernacles was the illumination of the temple. Now, the tabernacle, if you know anything about it from an Old Testament standpoint, is where the very presence of God essentially was housed. The Shekinah glory, which is light, 
powerful stuff. And this was the illumination of the temple, the presence of the glory of God, this light that shines. And this illumination of the temple ceremony involved the ritual lighting of four golden oil-fed lamps. And this was in the main court area they would light these. Now, when I say, you know, four golden oil-fed lamps, I'm not talking about like your table-side lamps on your nightstand, right? These lamps were huge candelabras. They were 75 feet high each. I mean, these were big. And they would, you know, feed these things with oil and they would light them at night, all four of them. And of course, it it was to remind the people of the pillar of fire that had guided Israel in their wilderness journey. And all night long, they would keep them lit. And history tells us that they, they were so bright, they were so big and so bright that they literally illuminated the entire city from four lamps. And when this would happen, in celebration and anticipation, all of the holiest men in Israel would dance and sing songs of, of praise and joy before the Lord, sort of like David did when he was ushering back the Ark, the Covenant. This festival was a reminder to the people of Israel, not just of God's faithfulness in the past, in the way that he spoke light into creation, then guided them by light, but also that he'd promised to send a light. There's all kinds of Old Testament prophecies that I didn't have time to get into today that use the metaphor of light for the Messiah. On the people living in a land of great darkness, a light has shined. Just one among many. So this was a promise for this future light that was coming, that God had promised to send a light to a sin-darkened world. God promised to send a Messiah to restore Israel's glory, to release them from bondage, to bring them into joy. This is the context. This is where Jesus is hanging out, the Feast of Tabernacles, the massive lighting of these four candelabras, 75 feet high, that illuminated the entire city. This is where Jesus is at, and it's in this scene, he's hanging out, that we're told that some of the religious leaders and Pharisees bring out a woman and throw her, essentially, at Jesus' feet and say, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. You probably know the story. It's kind of a buzzkill for this great ceremony. And they did this to, we're told, test Jesus. They wanted to entrap him in some way, and they said, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says that we should stone her. What do you say? In the midst of the Feast of Tabernacles, this remembrance of Moses guiding the people, you know, along with God and all these things, the law of Moses, they revered Moses. The law of Moses says this, what do you say? And then you know, maybe you know what Jesus does. He doesn't does what he normally does, which is he ignores their question for the most part. He starts writing on the ground. Some people think it was to distract the attention of the people because not to be too whatever, but if a woman's caught in the very act of adultery, not sure what state she was in, so he's distracting their attention. Who knows what he was writing? All kinds of guesses about that. 
But then he looks to the teachers and says famously, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Then we're told that they, (laughs) one by one, drop their stones, starting with the oldest first, (laughs) which tells you something about the naivete of youth. The oldest first, they all walk away, and, and Jesus says to this woman, he says, is there no one here who condemns you? She says, no one, sir. He says, well, neither do I. Go and turn your life around. Then he turns around. As soon as he says that to the woman, he turns around, and in John 8, verse 12, he says this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You sense the absolute gravity of this moment? At the Feast of Tabernacles, the lighting, and then this crazy event, and he has been tested. Then he turns and says, I am the light of the world. This is no small claim. Visualize the impact of that in that moment. But I want you to note something. He says this, he makes this claim, I am the light of the world. He makes this claim on the heels of something, right after something has just happened. It's the woman caught in adultery. He makes this claim after he has demonstrated to the people forgiveness, compassion, and mercy. I am the light of the world. Did you see what just happened? I am the light of the world. Forgiveness, compassion, and mercy. Now here's where it gets, to me at least, even more interesting. We're going to keep progressing a little bit. Jesus says in John 8, 12, as we just read, I am the light of the world. Of all these eight I am statements we're looking at in this series, this one is unique in two different ways. The first one I'm going to get to here in a second. But it's unique in two ways apart from all the other ones. This is the only I am statement of the eight that we're looking at that John records Jesus making on two separate occasions. Some of the other I am statements, he repeats himself within the same exact context, the same scenario, within a paragraph. He reiterates it to make a point, but this is the only one of the statements that John records Jesus making in two separate occasions. So we have this first occasion on the heels of the woman caught in adultery. Let's talk about the next one. This is Jesus as the light, part three. The next one comes literally one chapter later. You could refrain from putting the verse on the screen for a second. I want to give a little bit of context for this one too. So keep in mind that Jesus has had this woman brought to him. Compassion, forgiveness, and mercy. I am the light of the world. 
And then from there in John 8, he goes into a sort of a lengthy diatribe, spelling many more things out, and he gets into a serious argument with the Pharisees. And it says at the end of John 8 that they sought to then stone him. And we're actually going to talk about the I am statement that prompted that. I'm going to preach on that next week. But by the end of John 8, they've figured out the stones they dropped, they've picked them back up again. And they're ready to throw them at Jesus. But it says that Jesus was able to get away. There's like a little bit of a mystical element to that, that he was able to sort of pass through them. So he leaves this crazy situation. And then he goes and he says, he's, as he was on his way, so he's getting out of this situation. John 9, right at the beginning it says, and then he encountered a man who was blind from birth. He encounters a man who was blind from birth. A woman caught in adultery. Now we have a man, a blind man. And Jesus begins to speak a little bit about the situation and what's going on. The beginning of John 9. And then in John 9, 5, he repeats the claim that he had made. We don't know exactly how much earlier, but he repeats the claim that he had made earlier. In John 9, 5, he says this, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then if you know the story, or if you don't, I'd really encourage you to read it. John, 9, John 8 and 9 are just powerful back-to-back chapters. John 9, 25 is where the blind man says, like, I don't know who this guy is. One thing I do know, once was blind, now I see. That's where that story comes from. So Jesus says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He re-ups his claim. He doubles down, so to speak. And then... As soon as he says that, he proceeds to heal the man. He gives the man who had never seen sight. It's one of those weird stories where we're told that he spits in the dirt and makes some mud, puts it on the guy's eyes. You're like, did you really have to do that? Kind of a germaphobe. The spit and dirt in my eye, I'm not, you know. But Jesus makes this claim, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he heals the man. So with the woman caught in adultery, forgiveness, compassion, and mercy, I am the light of the world. The man born blind, I am the light of the world. Compassion, mercy, healing. I don't think those are accidental. I want to finish one little bit here. We're going to take a real hard pivot, so I want you to brace yourselves, okay? So let me just say one final thing on this Jesus as the light. Jesus as the light, part four. Something that I just wanted to make a statement about because it's incredibly powerful and something to think about. This is in Revelation 22, the vision of the new Jerusalem that John has, where he articulates as best he can, it seems at least, some, what it's going to look like for those who inherit eternal life. I love this so much. Revelation 22, 5, Jesus this is John writing. He says, there will be no more night. He says, they will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. Some translations say that the Lord will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. 
And at the end and for all of eternity, that light will still be shining. And that's a promise. Here's the hard pivot. I said there were two things that made this I am statement unique. The first is it's the only one John records Jesus making on two totally separate occasions. The second thing that makes it unique, and I want you to adjust your brains here for a second, is, you can go ahead and put this on the screen, this is the only, the only thing Jesus said about himself that he also said about us. It's the only thing, all that context I just gave you, all those scenarios, this is the only thing that Jesus said about himself that he also says about you. Those of us who believe, who follow. Let's talk about us as the light for a second. Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning, is when Jesus says this. 5, 14 through 16, he just comes right out. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Then he helps us out a little bit. Doesn't just make it super abstract, which he did a lot of times. You're like, what's that exactly mean? He says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I think you know me well enough to know, you know Pastor Jordan well enough to know, heard us preach enough times, I think, that we don't believe in any kind of idea that you can work your way into heaven, that you can do enough good things to somehow get there, that is what a large percentage of people believe today, including a large percentage of people who identify themselves as evangelical Christians. They believe that if you just do enough good stuff, you can get into heaven. We know that is absurd, it's not true, it's not biblical, we don't believe that. It's not how it works, right? It is the grace of God, right? not of works, so that nobody can boast, right? Us by ourselves, apart from God, our righteousness, Old Testament says, again, Old Testament stuff, our righteousness in an Old Testament context, meaning our good deeds are, you know, oh, I'm going to do this to help out or whatever, all those things are as filthy rags. That's Old Testament. In the New Testament, in Christ... Our good deeds are not filthy rags. They are the light of the world. So what's happened oftentimes, far too often, is that people fall into one of two ditches. They think it's all grace, and I'm just going to chill until Jesus comes back or whatever. Do what I want. You know, I'm good. I mean, because I, I believe. I wouldn't do that. Then there's another part or it's like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep, I've got to just do, do, do. It's all about doing, 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 and more and more and more. And it's divorced from an understanding of who you are in Christ. And it's all born out of human effort. 
I wouldn't go there either. But there's a healthy center, incredibly healthy center, where we understand that it is by his grace that we can do anything, breathe. I mean, it's by his grace. It's his great love for us that allows us to live. But we don't just sit in that. We understand that he's told us clearly, you are the light of the world. And he gives us an idea that let the world see your good deeds so they can glorify your Father in heaven. Not about you, not about earning a, you know, whatever pin or a lifetime achievement award for all these great things you've done or, or whatever. It's none of that. Let your light shine so that your Father is glorified. There's a place where we do things because we are loved, not to earn his love. And that's what I'm talking about. That they may see your good deeds. So you are the light of the world. You are a city set on a hill. You are the thing that points people to God or not. Let your light shine. It's no small thing. Paul reemphasizes this, and this is about where we're going to kind of sort of finish here. Paul speaks to this in Ephesians chapter 4. He starts off at verse 1, and then we're going to do verse 1 and then down to 17 and 24. And I'm going to kind of just break this down as we go. Paul says at the beginning, Ephesians 4, 1, he says this, I urge you, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What's the calling you've received? Well, first of all, it's Jesus saying, come and follow be my disciple, follow my path, walk in my footsteps, abide in me. And you are the light of the world. Why urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? The hardening of of their hearts. I think we understand that a little bit, but this is where it gets interesting to me. Having lost all sensitivity. If you look up that word, if you understand that word in the Greek, sensitivity, what, he's, what that word has is really deep connotation to it. Having lost all sensitivity, we understand a little bit, but what it actually is in the Greek is it's this deep level of callousness. To become callous or to cease to feel pain is what that word means. So it's sensitivity isn't a bad translation, don't get me wrong, but saying having the, lost the ability to feel pain. And he's not talking about our own pain. He's talking about the pain of others. Having become calloused, hard-hearted, withdrawn, inward, cease to feel pain, cease to be moved. Having lost all sensitivity, there's so much here, they have given themselves over to sensuality. Stop there for a second. Sensuality certainly has this connotation of uh, some physical stuff that goes with it. But again, in the Greek, this actually means 
uh, wantonness or gluttony. It's, it's, and he's going to say this in a little bit here, but it's an indulgence piece. It's not just related to how you interact with your body physically when it comes to relationships. It's just giving yourself over in general. Well, why would you have to give yourself over to wantonness and gluttony? Well, what do people do when they become callous and they can't feel pain? They try to make themselves feel. Well, in order to make yourself feel, if you can't, you're going to have to do more and more stuff. Accumulate more. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. The word impurity in the Greek means to mix, mixing. So again, it's not just a physical, relational connotation with this impurity. It's a mixing. It's basically taking what's in you, this purity that God's given you in so many different areas, and it's taking things of the world and mixing those together. And this is one people like to skip over. And they're full of greed. So they feel no more, cease to feel pain. They want to have a lot. Just mix with the world. And they're greedy. Let that one hang out there for a minute. Then he says, that, however, is not capital N-O-T, that is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In the Old Testament, your righteousness is like filthy rags. In the New Testament, your good deeds are a light that shines before men. And Paul tells us you're created to actually have righteousness. You can be righteous. It's God's righteousness that you put on. But what does that look like? It looks like a lot of things, but for the sake of our text today and where I've been, I want to just finish briefly with this, and I have a video I actually want to show you. If you, have, if you are callous, you have lost the ability to feel, to be moved by pain, to be moved by suffering. You're usually not thinking of other people. And so love and good deeds, the light that's shining, it's going to be dim if not non-existent. So let's talk real quick about love and good deeds. There are many reasons that we gather together on Sunday mornings, many reasons. To be encouraged, I think we, many times we need that. To be challenged, we always need that as well. To be lifted up, to receive prayer, to pray for others, to, to all kinds of reasons, to be reminded. But the writer of Hebrews tells us at least one major reason that we're supposed to gather together on a really regular basis. And he says it like this in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on. Jordan didn't know I was using this text earlier, and he referenced me spurring him on and vice versa, which is interesting. How we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some in the habit are doing, but are encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. Let's not, let's not skip church. 
for all kinds of nonsensical reasons. Let's make sure we're in the habit of getting together. Why? Well, we're the light of the world. And we need to be spurred on towards love and good deeds. I'm not a, not a, not a fan of jumping on horses and riding them. Not my thing. But I know enough to know how do you move a horse that doesn't want to move? You have a spur. Sometimes it's my job to be the spur. It, that word in the, again, I know I'm using a lot of Greek stuff today, um, but that word spur, if you look it up in the Greek, not, this is not a joke. Not that I would make a joke about something like this. I don't know why I said that, but what it means is to agitate or to incite or to frustrate. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Agitate's the primary one. Let us, not, or let us consider how we may agitate one another on towards love and good deeds. Why would we need to agitate each other? Because we can become callous. Because we can become unfeeling, because we can become desensitized, because we can forget that we're urged to live a life worthy of the calling we've received, because we can forget that we're the light of the world. And sometimes, sometimes we need a swift kick in the side to move us. I love that my friend was so chill and smooth in the way that he played sports, but I loved it even more when I kicked him in the side when he got something that made him mad, when he started to feel differently and all of a sudden things shifted and he, he went into a different mindset and he was able to change even what he had was great ability. He was even to take it to another level and fulfill potential that otherwise you wouldn't have seen. It took him getting agitated. What is it that agitates you? But that it spurs you on towards love and good deeds. says, all the more as you see the day approaching. I think we could all agree that right now, we need it all the more to be spurred on, to be encouraged, to be agitated, to be kicked in the side if need be, to be, have a bucket of cold water thrown on our face, to wake up. The world needs light. Needs the light of Jesus that's manifest, not in so many ways that people think they're supposed to show. There's a whole other sermon, I'll stay away from that, but that manifests itself through the good deeds of forgiveness, compassion, of mercy, of healing. Basically, the entire opposite of all social media. Forgiveness, compassion, mercy, and healing. Those are the things we're looking for.